This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In popular discourse today, few concepts are more sensationalized and maliciously caricatured than that of the Islamic State. In his fascinating new book, For Love of the Prophet, An Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State, published by Princeton University Press in 2016, Noah Solomon, Associate Professor of Religion at Carleton College, arrests the concept of the Islamic State away from its contemporary, stereotypical life by offering a rich and dazzling account of state power and formation in the Sudan. Contesting recent arguments about the impossibility of an Islamic State, Solomon explores the social life of an attempted Islamic State in multiple and often unexpected locations of everyday life. What emerges from this brilliant and ferociously multi-layered analysis is an account of the political irreducible to the structure of the nation-state, permeating varied, discursive, institutional, and affective registers. In our conversation, we talked about the idea of doing an ethnography of the state, colonial and NIF projects of civilizing religion in Sudan, fundamentalization of knowledge, affective citizenship, and hagiography as political critique. This show to become a classic should be read by all. Here now is my conversation with Noah Solomon. Hello, Noah. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, Very good, Noah. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Really appreciate uh, this conversation. Uh, uh, As I was saying before we went on air that this is, uh, you know, a really resoundingly uh, uh, interesting and convincing book and has so many different layers that we'll have to do multiple conversations to get to the uh, uh, breadth of it. But today we'll get... I like that very much. Thank you. Try to scratch the surface. Uh, so we, we have a tradition, Noah, on new books in Islamic studies that uh, our first question is biographical. Uh, could you share with our listeners a bit, Noah, about how you became a scholar of Islam and Muslim societies and uh, how you came to write this particular book? Well, um, my my path to scholarship wasn't wasn't always a linear one. Uh, I, I guess I would say I, I'd taken some time off uh, in between high school and college to immerse myself in, in activist work, specifically among local peace and anti poverty organizations in the Boston area uh, where I grew up. Yet I think while while this activism was sustaining, I often felt like like we as activists were getting ourselves into cul de sacs that we couldn't escape. Scholarship for me 
was a place where I could dare to think big without the immediate concern, at least daily concern, for applicability. This was a task that I felt offered the potential to really dislodge some of the more sedimented ideas that were not advancing the movements I cared about uh, any longer. So on top of this, uh, scholarship, it really allowed me to explore, I guess I, I put it simply, how other people think. For me, what was most exciting about doing research, and this was true whether it was field work or library research, was putting myself into the heads of people who did not make the same foundational assumptions that I did. People who started from different principles, who upheld different sorts of ontologies. I think really the first time that, that this, or at least the radical potential of this, dawned on me fully was in a study abroad trip that I completed uh, junior year of college uh, in, in Cairo. It was, it was really there that I learned what was most productive was not me going to analyze or translate them, but rather engaging in deep study, uh, or at least I hoped at the level I could do as an undergraduate, of the traditions and cultures that I encountered and to bring back their way of looking at things to the problems that I was encountering in my own society to help me think differently about those problems and to engage in, in what I hoped would be real dialogue. So I think the fascination with the Islamic world uh, began for me really there. And I, I went, I mean, to be fully honest, I would like to tell a, a perfect linear story, but it, I, I went there somewhat on a whim. Um, but it really, the fascination with that part of the world began for me there in Egypt. When I got to graduate school uh, at the University of Chicago, I became really fascinated by modern Islamic political thought and the solutions it offered to solving the problems left in the wake of colonialism, both in terms of its limitations and its possibilities. Yet what really troubled me about the literature that I was reading is that while these ideas sounded good or bad, depending on how you saw it, in theory, they were really only that. They were theory. What what they look like in practice was less clear. How would they respond? I, I, I started to wonder to the material challenges of establishing a nation state. How would they respond to governing a diverse public, both diverse demographically and in terms of diversity of ideas? How would they respond to the inevitable international pressures that they would face? These things weren't really clear to me in the kinds of Islamic political theory that I was reading. At that point in time, uh, in the early 2000s, when I was starting my PhD work, Sudan was really the only place in the Arabic-speaking world where these modernist Islamic political ideas I've been reading had been applied. Elsewhere, they simply made up the ideology of the opposition. Well, in Sudan, those who were espousing the, these ideas had actually come to power. On top of this, the regime in power had engaged in this experiment for more than 10 years. So in some very real sense, Sudan was really the only place I could go to answer the questions that I was interested in. Uh, so really, it was the questions that sparked me, and Sudan was the place to answer them. So, so that's really why Sudan. But as for why the Islamic State Project in particular... Uh, that that really is is a different uh, uh, issue for me, and here I, I think it emerged out of what I felt was a real gap in the literature. First, it seemed that while we understood the state project in theory, but very little work had discussed how this political experiment was actually lived. 
I felt that Sudan offered the perfect opportunity to observe the inner workings of this political project beyond both the caricatures uh, painted by its opponents and the utopianism of its supporters. But even more importantly, I wanted to understand what it meant to desire and embrace the Islamic State as a political ideal. This wasn't really clear to me. The vast majority of literature on Sudan has taken on or has been written from the perspective of opponents of this political project. That work's important, but it tells us very little about why people in Sudan came to embrace the political ideal of the Islamic State. And I want to clarify that those who embrace the political ideal of the Islamic State uh, are not simply those who support the regime, even if they, even if the regime laid claim uh, in the name of that state, it laid claim to the identity of that state. Really, what came to be clear to me is that the vast majority of supporters of the Islamic State were opponents of the regime. In fact, they often based their opposition to the regime on the idea that the regime was not implementing the Islamic State correctly. So I felt that the explanations of such people, such supporters of the Islamic State as a political ideal, as either brainwashed or evil, were, were unsatisfactory to me. And this I could tell on a really visceral level from even the briefest time in Sudan when I went there for my preliminary fieldwork. What motivated me to write the book was to understand why an Islamic political solution seemed the most ethical and just way forward out of Sudan's many problems for so many, and then how that desire was cultivated and sustained. It's really for this reason that I call the book For Love of the Prophet, because I, I think while we can debate whether the supporters of the political ideal of the Islamic State are misguided or not, that's certainly a topic uh, up for debate, the fact of the matter is that they understood support of such a state as a pious duty, as an act of love and devotion to the system of, uh, to the system of, of a social order laid down by God through the Muslim prophet. And it was through the lens of that devotion that they understood their political participation participation, either in support or in opposition to the regime. So that's really how I got from an interest in the Middle East to this particular project. So Noah, let's begin with the broader conceptual intervention that this book makes. And uh, uh, I would like to hear more from you on this idea of what you call an ethnography of the state. And you uh, uh, talk about in the book uh, ways in which you found the state to be operating in places that you would not expect it to. Uh, and this book really is an exploration of the tentacles of the state and all these different uh, diffusion of state power in uh, multiple locations, uh, unexpected locations. Could you speak a bit about what this idea of doing an ethnography of the state uh, represents and, and uh, shed some light on that idea? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, so I got interested in the ethnography of the state not by reading about it before I... Uh, went to the field. If you had asked me when I went to the field, what is the ethnography of the state, I would have had absolutely no idea what you were talking about. So I got interested in it uh, rather through a, a problem, uh, an intellectual problem, an ethnographic problem that I encountered in the field. So the project that I had proposed to my funders when I first went off uh, to the field concerned a study of the Islamic State project in the places that I expected to find it, those institutional sites normally associated with state power. Which, uh, which are imagined, I think, to project that power down onto an unsuspecting public. But when I got to Sudan, really all geared up and ready to do this kind of project, I, I realized that perhaps I was looking in the wrong location. I, I started the project um, by looking at the school system. 
the place that I imagined would be the place where this Islamist ideology was both produced and, uh, and forwarded and sustained. Uh, but when I got to the Ministry of Education, I found that far from implementing some Islamist intellectual fantasy, the workers were hard at work implementing the agenda of the UN and other development agencies who were thinking about a new curriculum that would support the period of national unity that was about to be inaugurated through the signing of what was called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2005 with the, uh, with the South, the agreement that ended the, the longest-running uh, civil war in the world. So, as you said, these government institutions didn't seem to be housing the state and its agenda, but rather they were housing the agendas and even the personnel at, at times of international aid and development. I, I could have stopped there and studied that. INGOs seeing like the state, for example, could have been my project. But both my graduate degree and my uh, intellectual commitment was to Islamic studies, and so I couldn't stop there. And, but I but I was nervous. I, I started to wonder, had I arrived in Sudan too late to study the Islamic State? And I think um, I, I in this moment of a crisis, uh, on these rather frantic bus rides across town from institution to institution, trying unsuccessfully to find the state uh, where I expected it to be, it was on these bus rides that I found the state and placed elsewhere. From the aesthetic choices that people made, uh, for example, a new Islamic form of pop music that the regime had supported in order to create a public space on which the Islamic State could be built, uh, often uh, served, this kind of music often served as a soundtrack to my bus rides across town, uh, to the way in which political discourse itself among the riders on that bus happened within the grammar of Islamic politics established by the regime, despite the diversity of opinions on it. People might have rejected the government in power and its vision of Islam, but the fact that there was and would remain an Islamic basis to the organization of governance and society had become a really difficult uh, idea to dispute. So I, I want to be clear that it wasn't that the government had abandoned the Islamic State project, but that on the other hand, due to the peace agreement with the South, the key institutions that had once supported it, law, education, etc., were being rethought on a more multicultural basis, forcing the regime to look elsewhere to forward their Islamic State project. And on the other hand, the, the regime was only one actor in sustaining the Islamic State in the first place. The sector that we might refer to as civil society or the public sphere was, was I, I really think, and I come to argue in the book, co-constitutive in this project of establishing the Islamic State, and even when they opposed the regime. And this blurry boundary between state and civil society began to really fascinate me. So I would say what ended up being interesting was not the formal institutions of the government in charge, which seemed, as I, as I saw very clearly on the ground, to sway quite profoundly with international political currents. And on the other hand, were not so objectively different from the institutions that preceded the current regime. Uh, what interested me instead was rather the growing coherence of a commitment to an Islamic political order that seemed somehow to persist, despite the almost endless challenges that it faced from every direction. So uh, I would say it, it was the state, and this is a phrase that I, I use several times in the book, uh, borrowing it from uh, Begonia Arzaga, it was the state as a social subject in everyday life that became uh, really my object of inquiry. And I began to look into how it was cultivated, how it was sustained, even in spite of the failures of the government who spoke in its name. So uh, for the benefit of uh, listeners who uh, may not be familiar with the Sudanese context, uh, Noah, perhaps... Uh, 
Could you speak a bit about some key um, terms and ideas that populate the early part of your book, such as what is the I, uh, NIF, the Salvation Revolution, and what are the major features of their project of civilizing religion that you discuss extensively in the first uh, chapters of your uh, book? And perhaps you could also speak a bit about how that project overlapped with previous British colonial efforts to uh, do the same, this civilizational uh, project. Great, uh, sure. So uh, the National Islamic Front, uh, Jabhat al-Islami al-Qalmiya, as it's known in Arabic, uh, was an organization that emerged uh, in the 1980s out of uh, out of the landscape of the constantly sort of splitting uh, uh, landscape of the Muslim Brotherhood. This particular branch of the Brotherhood was founded by the Sudanese lawyer and intellectual Hassan al-Turabi, who died this past March. Uh, the NIF, the National Islamic Front, were the brains behind what was known as Saurat and Al-Qaz, the Salvation Revolution, though really one might say it was a coup rather than a revolution, uh, which occurred in 1989. What really interested me um, in uh, the intellectuals that underlay this uh, military regime that came to power in 1989 was that, uh, that these intellectuals made two really bold claims. One, they claim to make a definitive break with the colonial past. And two, they made the claim that they were reviving what they called the Islamic state of yesteryear. And sometimes that was the 19th century uh, Mahdist state. Sometimes that was the, uh, that was the uh, medieval state of the Funj. It, at, at different points in time, uh, that Islamic state had a different identity that they claimed to be reviving. Both of these claims... Um, seemed really problematic to me. And I took uh, the first two chapters of the book, the section I call Interventions, to offer a genealogy rather than a history of the Islamic State project. I came to see that the state, unlike much else in Sudanese history, I came to see that the state, in fact, had a really clear starting point. Right? Other things, we're not sure exactly when it started. There were influences coming from many directions. The state, on the other hand, has a really clear starting point that began with the establishment of the colonial occupation and its civilizing mission in the early 20th century. There was no state before that. There were a number of other political systems in place, but none had the characteristics of the state that we've come to understand as associated with them and that the Salvation Government itself continued to forward when they came to power. So I thought it was important before getting to the debate over the Islamic, which preoccupies me really in the middle section of the book, to discuss the other half of that famous phrase, the Islamic State. What exactly does the state indicate in that phrase, the Islamic State? What I found in the end were some pretty fascinating content, uh, some pretty fascinating uh, constants, particularly the way in which religion was managed under the secularizing, civilizing projects of the British and under the Islamic Civilization Project, as they called it, of, uh, of the uh, Salvation Regime. They both made use of the apparatus of this very distinct political form to reform religion in what I uh, saw as really similar ways. What this began to tell me is that these debates over whether Sudan was a secular or an Islamic state in the present, and I would say Hussein Agrima's work really uh, was inspirational in helping me think through this, what, what was interesting here was that the state itself, uh, what was interesting here was that the state itself had been uh, underanalyzed. It, it suggested to me that we need to zero in on 
on the state and its particular modes of power if we're going to understand Sudan's problems and their potential solution. And that the conversation over whether Sudan's state should be secular or Islamic is, in fact, perhaps a distraction. So this is a theme that I pick up on in the end of the book uh, when I discuss the tragic situation in South Sudan, a state who based its independence to a great degree on being a secular unraveling of the Islamic State project when they declared independence in 2011. But we've seen in South Sudan that the secular state has reproduced many of the problems of the Islamic State with really devastating results, that undoing the violence and the injustice of the Islamic State in Sudan was not as easy as drawing a line on the map in changing the identity of the state from secular to religious. It seems to me that a much more focused interrogation of the state itself and the kinds of politics that it enables needs to be, and to my knowledge, it still hasn't been, initiated. Let me move uh, to another major uh, theme of this book, which is uh, the whole project of ta'seel, uh, or what you uh, translate as uh, fundamentalization uh, could you explain a bit uh, this this uh, project of Tafsil, uh, especially as it uh, uh, pertained to questions of knowledge and uh, perhaps also talk about some ways in which Sufi groups in Sudan engaged with this idea and uh, encountered it? Sure. Um, so, um, as I mentioned uh, before, one of the things I found most interesting in studying um, the National Salvation period was the way in which a certain kind of space was opened up for Islamic modes of deliberation. While the formal state structures were rather fickle and not always terribly discernible from the state structures and periods that did not define themselves as Islamic, this opening up of matters of public concern to Islamic discourse was, I think, really unprecedented in comparison to other episodes in the modern period. This didn't, and, and I, I want to be clear that this didn't just happen willy-nilly or as a result of something called the Islamic Revival, but was rather a direct and unyielding project of the regime on which they spent really considerable resources. They established think tanks, educational institutions, academic and media fora in order to create this context for Islamic deliberation. This was a project that they referred to as, as you mentioned, ta'asil, literally bringing something back to its root or fundament, related to the Arabic word for fundamentalization, al-usulia, and that I define as, as I think its, uh, its inventors meant it as fundamentalization. This process focused on the natural and social sciences. And I, I think, interestingly, it's worth pointing out that it did not constitute a rejection of Western contribution to those fields, so the natural and social sciences, replacing them with Islamic ones, for example. In, instead, what it did is it sought to reevaluate the products of those fields according to an Islamic moral framework. So its architects framed their Ta'asil project as a critique of what they called scientific positivism, which they understood as placing objectivity over morality. The vanguards of the project asked the Sudanese public to embrace the modern sciences, but to evaluate its successes and failures on the basis of its ability to fulfill the ethical goals of Islam. Um, as you mentioned, the second half of the chapter brings the Sufi orders into this discussion, and, and I brought them into the discussion because they seemed to be a really fascinating space to, to examine what I call the itinerary, the kind of playing out of this Ta'asil project. 
Sufis who who still, I would say, until today, are really the unmarked category of Islam in, in Sudan. Sufis both served as a ready public upon which the government projects were often uh, staged, um, and the Sudanese Islamic State project fairly consistently, at least since the 1990s, has had a particularly Sufi color. So Sufis both served as a ready public upon which government projects were often staged, and at other times they stood in oppositional or uncomfortable relationship to the eventual flowering of such projects. So for me, studying Sufi publics was one way to measure what degree state efforts have uh, succeeded and what degree uh, they've succeeded as intended and what degree they've been reworked towards new ends. Now, uh, in the next uh, chapter of the book, uh, you continue the theme of uh, the state's um, uh, cultivation of particular forms of citizenship, and you focus on a very fascinating aspect, which is the attunement of the aesthetic and affective registers of citizens and uh, aesthetic experiences of citizens, especially as it relates to cultivating the particular form of piety uh, centered on devotion and love for uh, the prophet. And that's where the title of the book for Love of the Prophet uh, comes from. Uh, could you say a bit about uh, that aspect of the book, Nova, this whole question of uh, uh, the uh, cultivation of aesthetic experience as a way of uh, 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 cultivating a certain kind of citizen? Sure. Um, this, um, this for me is in some sense really uh, the heart of, of the book, and you're right that I derived the title from this chapter. I, I became really interested in thinking about the space, the actual physical space on which the project of the Islamic State was built. For the regime who, who I think, uh, sought to keep the Islamic State alive at, at all costs, the national capital where it really spent the bulk of its resources posed, posed a real danger to the fulfillment of its project. First, the identity of the capital as a symbol of the nation was being challenged by those who sought a capital representative of a broader spectrum of citizens, both Muslim and non-Muslim, as was happening with the signing of the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement, which sought to create a unified Sudan that recognized uh, more than just its Islamic identity. Um, so, on the one hand, you had uh, the identity of the capital being challenged by political forces like this. And second, the capital, I think, also posed a danger to the project of Islamic statehood in that in the in the moral geography that, that underlay the relationship of many Sudanese with Islam, the urban space itself was constituted as a threat, a place in which the Muslim could be tempted and distracted away from his or her faith. So for this reason, the regime really began to attend to the unique qualities of the physical space into which it intervened. And it was here that I saw a deep interest in aesthetics, visual, aural, architectural, that I saw this deep interest in aesthetics abiding. Aesthetics and the human consumption of it was understood to produce certain kinds of affect that the regime saw as essential in fostering commitment to the Islamic State ideal. Um, in particular, the regime was interested in making that experience inspire love of the prophet, which they understood as directly related to the desire to found a political order according to the sunnah that the prophet laid down. And so they came to spearhead a whole number of public aesthetic projects, from the establishment of a ubiquitous radio station that sought to modernize traditional prophetic praise poetry 
country to supporting mass ritual exercises of prayer upon the prophet, what's known as Tuslia. So the regime established these public aesthetic projects in order to excite the effective stance of the public, in order to uh, lay claim to and reform this urban space that had really become the center of their uh, of their political project. Now, the final chapter uh, of the book, you take up the theme of uh, what one might broadly call uh, the location of Islamic politics, and you make the argument that uh, the locus of the political cannot be exhausted by the nation state. But the way in which you make that argument is really fascinating. It is by beginning that chapter with uh, a hagiographical account of a story uh, of a miracle, uh, which you use as uh, a staging ground in talking about how these kinds of narratives can serve as a form of political critique and a form of politics, which uh, is not comparable or is not limited to the idea of the nation state. So perhaps uh, could you rehearse that argument uh, for our listeners and perhaps by giving some sense of that uh, narrative without uh, completely doing away with the suspense of uh, that uh, <laughs> wonderful story. Yeah, well, I, I won't give away the uh, the uh, the plot of the story, but um, but you're right. I, I begin chapter five with a lengthy fable of sorts uh, of a mysterious meeting uh, of the architect of the salvation regime, Hassan al-Tarabi, uh, and a particularly prominent Sufi sheikh, a person by the name of Abdurrahim al-Burai. The story um, that I begin the chapter with was told to me several times in response to my professed interest in Islamic politics, really, I think, as a corrective to the kinds of inquiries I was engaging in, as a rejoinder that I was missing the true source of political power if I was just going to look at the architects of the regime. And remember, this is where I started my inquiry. It was interesting to me that this story that my Sudanese interlocutors pointed to as describing politics took up absolutely none of the key terms in political thought we often use to analyze phenomena on the ground. There was no mention of civil society. There was no mention of government. There was no mention of public order. Instead, we found two Islamic leaders trading barbs over what constituted the proper Muslim subject, expressed in the language of ritual purity and pollution, debating the relationship of these techniques of piety to leadership. So it was for this reason that it was really important to me to leave this fable untranslated, to really start the chapter with just laying out, telling the story, to really dwell on, because I, I really thought it was the only way to really dwell on what sorts of political claims were being made. I forward the argument that in order to understand Islamic politics, we really need to get out of the comparative framework of thinking about how much Islamic politics is either different from us, what I might call the clash of civilizations model, or how much it in fact looks like us, albeit in another idiom, what I might call the civil Islam model. Though one can't deny the effect of the colonial encounter and the continuing Western dominance on how politics are construed in the Muslim world, I found that often such a framing did not extend beyond a very small circle of political elite. Politics among the vast majority of people that I met operated in very different terms and with very different sorts of goals. So my placing of this story at the outset of Chapter 5 was really an attempt to displace those analytical categories that are always at the ready, I think, in studies of Islamic politics to translate Islamic political systems and, and, and really to see if we might take seriously the categories that are in use by uh, the people that I met. 
So as a final uh, substantive question, Noah, I was wondering if I could have you reflect a bit on uh, the broader intervention that you see this book making in the study of uh, uh, Islamism and the study of this notion of the Islamic State. And I especially ask this question because you do engage extensively in the book on, uh, you know, recent arguments about the impossibility of uh, yeah. uh, the Islamic State and, you know, the argument that the modern institution of the state is not compatible with the traditional resources of uh, right. of the religion and so on. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what kind of an intervention do you see yourself making in that whole conversation? Sure, sure. So, um, as you know, many have uh, come to argue that the Islamic state is somewhat of an oxymoron, that both Islam and the state are modes of moral subjectivation and that they are rival ones that absolutely cannot be harmonized. This means, I think, the implications here is that claims of an Islamic state are either a lie, not really a state or not really Islam, or they're a failure. So the point of, of, of my book was not simply to ask what happens when the impossibility becomes a possibility. What does the Islamic state look like despite its contradictions, though I suppose the book does that too. Rather, I argue that the architects of the Islamic State in Sudan are quite well versed in the intricacies of both Islam and the state. And they're not either, simply at least, pulling the wool over people's eyes. So I think that what I found out is that rather than seeing the state as an inconvenient assemblage they must deal with in order to establish an Islamic political order, regime intellectuals understood the state as the perfect mechanism for bringing that about, precisely given its ability to disperse its power among society and within individuals in really exactly the way that Foucault discusses. And this is really what the three ethnographic chapters at the center of the book are trying to do, to show how the modes of power of the state are dispersed in such a way that even when the formal institutions of the state are effectively taken over by international bodies, as I saw, the state can still endure and I think it will endure long after this political uh, regime, this particular political regime disappears, barring some sort of liquidation of those who support an Islamic political order. So uh, as we're coming to an end of our uh, time, uh, Noah, could you uh, tell our listeners a bit about uh, what you're working on now? What's the next uh, project? So, um, besides taking a, a deep breath after finishing uh, this project, um, the, the next project um, that I'm working on, that I've already begun to work on to some degree, um, uh, is in some sense is a spinoff from For Love of the Prophet, and in some sense is uh, going in a really new direction. The book, as I've imagined it, uh, consists of, of five character studies of interlocutors I had the privilege of knowing uh, in Sudan each of whom forced me to challenge some reigning paradigm in the anthropology or the history of Islam. Each of these characters, for me, really undo these paradigms through their very biographies. So the book will be, in some sense, a programmatic intervention into the fields of the anthropology and history of Islam writ large, but through the microcosm rather than the macrocosm. The Islamist artist, the Salafi jinn sorcerer, the Sufi communist, the Arab Africanist, each one of these biographies, these are the people uh, who, who the reader will meet in, in the book as I'm imagining it, each one of these biographies complicates what I think are the dichotomous ways we've been led to frame the morphology of the Islamic world. So 
it's my hope that by the end of that book, the reader would come to know five figures in the Muslim world, each of whose complexity would help them complicate the taxonomies they've been introduced to in other literatures in the field. So this is, uh, this is the book that I'm uh, hoping to write, and we'll see uh, what it actually becomes uh, once it's actually on the page. For Love of the Prophet and Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State, by Princeton, published by Princeton University Press by uh, Noah Solomon. Uh, thank you so much, Noah, for this exciting and wonderful book. I'm sure uh, it will spark a great deal of uh, conversations and much uh, debate. And uh, so good uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. Absolutely. So this was my conversation with Noah Solomon about his book, For Love of the Prophet. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and please keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.